Welcome to Preserving Valor, the podcast dedicated to saving the personal stories of veterans. My name is Jay Vissers. This is the third episode in the story of U.S. Army Air Force veteran Joe Enrietti. In our last episode, Joe and his crew completed their training stateside and literally shipped out for Rackheath, England, aboard the converted troop ship Ile de France, arriving in the morning to a crowded harbor. There were ships all over, different types of... Then they had a small ship that we'd get off of and go down like a rope ladder and, and get into port with that. I think it was so empty. And then we went to the base at Ratkeith, England. On the roughly 200-mile trip to Ratkeith, on the outskirts of Norwich, Joe got his first impression of England. A uh, very clean country. There was no, how should it, brush or that around trees or that. Hmm. It was cleaner than ours. Here we leave the tree, it'd go down, but over there they used it for for fuel. Okay. The dead ones. I had a neighbor over here that he cut little twigs from the from the woods. Now this is before forty four. And he his wife used to use that for cooking. It was a hot fire, quick but in England, no, there was no, no junk laying around. Kind of uh, old-looking, the, the, the towns and that. And it, no, they were getting pretty, hit pretty hard by the Germans. So there were a lot of... We didn't see too much of that. We went to London and different things. We seen some of the... How should I say it? The buildings that were bombed and stuff like that there, but they wouldn't even take us down to where they were really bombed out. Hmm. And the Germans had those buzz bombs that they'd go so far. Now that's the rockets. The Germans had the rockets. They'd go so far, run out of fuel, and then that's when they say when you heard it, stop running, you better start running because they were going to come down from there, and then they would explode, see? The V-1 rocket was the world's first long-range cruise missile. It used a pulse jet engine with a distinctive sound, like a gigantic bumblebee. It was developed during the Second World War and used by the Nazis as a terror weapon against Allied cities like London. Here are the first censored pictures of Germany's so-called flying bomb. Some have penetrated the defenses of southern England. Many more have been destroyed over the sea. After the V-1, German engineers also invented the first true rocket, the V-2, which later paved the way for space exploration. Another 20th century invention, SPAM, was popularized during World War II because of its portability and convenience. A lot of SPAM. <laughs> SPAM would come in in big cans, square cans, and it, it would keep for quite a while. It didn't even have to be refrigerated. 
and and they they dress it up of we know was spam and yeah you were hungry you ate but then they had black beer in town we went to town a few times we didn't have that much time off we all had bicycles we'd buy them like cars and they had these skinny wheels in that time already with the handlebar brakes now we had fat tires good cushion ride uh, there, there was a name for the brake you just push back on your pedals when you want to go forward you'd go forward but coast coaster brakes you push them back and you'd have back wheel brakes but then on the on the English one you had front brakes and back brakes but a handlebars you better get used to which one you press <laughs> press that front one lots of luck. That was our transportation. We'd if we went out that we were gonna come home in the evening, we'd wrap our our raincoat and then have our GI flashlight hooked on there and that's the way you would travel and uh yeah. But we trade them in that if if you found a better one you traded in and then when we were left they weren't giving us nothing for them so we called in our our uh, the kid that would come in the, in the mother or sister door would wash our clothes while uniforms were typically laundered by the quartermaster it was up to servicemen to handle the cleaning of personal items which could include socks and underwear this often meant employing civilians and uh we asked him which bikes he wanted and take his brothers and sisters and took our bikes. What didn't get used by the, the kids in there, we piled them up and set them on fire. Because <laughs> <laughs> all these dealers were waiting for them to sell them. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what happened to our bikes. Now money, see, we were paid in cash in the service. When it came down for cash, the MP and the pay officer would come in and you show me your dog tags. Joe Henry, he'd count up the money. Checks weren't just in business. So you had to keep the money, a money belt, next to your skin. The use of checks wasn't popularized in the United States until the 1950s. If a serviceman didn't want to keep all their cash in a money belt, they could buy war bonds or money orders to send home. At some bases, military banks or secure lockers were available. When you took a shower, you'd have to take that into your shower too because you're not in the shower by yourself. I need six or seven others taking the showers in your toilet. That's how you got paid, and that's how you knew what you had for the whole month. You got paid by the month. So you had to more or less ration yourself out to what what you had. We had a chance at once to go down to London, Piccadilly Square. That's where all the girls were, by the hundreds. Nighttime girls. And we had to go and see that something. Put the girls too, but the, yeah, it was Piccadilly Square. You can look that up on your computer sometime. Piccadilly Circus, often called Piccadilly Square, was an area known for its lively nightlife and entertainment venues during World War II. 
The combination of nightlife and young men in the military lent itself to the development of a sex trade. Prostitution was illegal in Britain at the time, and women engaged in the practice were sometimes known as Piccadilly Commandos. In the air, Joe was part of strategic bombings intended to cripple Germany's ability to continue waging war. They targeted airfields, oil refineries, and marshalling yards in France and Germany. The longest trip we ever made was like nine hours. And to get a nine hour trip, you'd have to, they'd install uh, Bombay uh, tanks, fuel tanks. There was, then you couldn't carry that many bombs, but you could go farther and get back home. And they would transfer the fuel out of those tanks into the wing tanks. Yeah, that's where our fuel was, in, in the wings. And that's one time we couldn't smoke because of the fumes. When the fumes got rock or they figured they were all gone, we could smoke. Not only that, at 10,000 feet, you went on oxygen mask. People hollered about the oxygen mask. No, but we'd be on an oxygen mask with the oxygen. And for the microphone, you had throat mics. There were two buttons that would go onto the vocal cords here. And then you had a strap around with a button, so you'd, you'd be on that and that'd be hooked up to the plane. A throat microphone, also known as a laryngophone, would be strapped around the neck and positioned over the wearer's voice box. When the wearer spoke, the vibrations from their throat would be converted into an electrical signal that could be transmitted. This allows it to perform well even in noisy environments, such as inside a B-24 bomber turret. The tail gunner's turret was cramped and isolated from the rest of the plane, which made intercom communications vital. The aircraft's intercom system typically had different channels or stations that could be tuned to specific roles or areas of the aircraft. The pilot might have a station, the gunners another, etc. This allowed crew members to communicate specifically with those who were relevant to their immediate needs without distracting or interrupting others. Now you get those two 50 calibers, they're enclosed, they're, they're enclosed in the, in the tour. The tail gun of a B-24 Liberator was typically equipped with twin 50 caliber M2 Browning machine guns. A 50 caliber is big because they have a lot of powder in them. We were, we were somewhat protected with our earphones and our helmet. Mm -hmm. But even then, oh yeah, there was some racketing at Tours. That's a good hearing aid moment in Ohio. Joe and the ball turret gunner, Birch, became close friends, in part because of their proximity in the plane. See, we'd sit back on the bomb bay. All the rest of the crew were up in here. Okay. 
And then uh, Birch and I were back of the Bombay, which was end up about here. And that's where we sit when landing and taking off. Birch, you was short and small. And you had to be small to be in that ball tort. And he was crunched up. He shoot between, his sight was between his legs. His legs would be up. And he'd be shooting all through his legs, but he could go all the way around her. <laughs> then I'd have to make sure he got back into the plane. You, that turret had to come up into the plane so it could land. Otherwise, it would scrape. So you know, make sure you get me up, Joe. Yep, we go. We're good pals. Well, we're all good pals. But him especially, because, yeah, we were, we shook the breeze back there. And we were like a family. We were close together to the officers. There was four officers and six enlisted men. And we were very close to everybody. Yeah, everybody, because you were, yeah, we'd uh, tell about our homes, our families, or whatever came up. Yeah. Yeah, you got to be like a family. And you trusted each one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, while you were in Europe, how did you stay in touch with people back home? They had a special letter. All our mail was censored by the officers. Now, the officers from another crew would censor our mail. Okay. And vice versa. So. You wouldn't get into more, how should I say, if you're writing a love letter or something like that, you can, they didn't want you to know what I was saying. So it's the crews from another, the officers from another crew would censor the mail. And then there was V-mail. My brother in Europe, my brother Johnny was with the infantry there and he was, he was walking up from the southern part of Italy and and he uh, got shell-shocked on the way up. But prior to that, we had a few letters back and forth. So he knew I was flying and I knew he was on the ground. And we'd say, oh, those poor buggers down there. And they'd say, oh, those poor buggers up there. But then what kind of a plane? I said, if you see plane coming with two tails on it, I could be in one of them, because the 17 only had one tail. Right. We had two tails. And I forget their one said, he was sleeping when they woke him up. Johnny, your brother's coming. He's, where? He said, up there, <laughs> the 24. <laughs> so we all could joke about that. But he came out, he got the Purple Heart then. Mail wasn't that, uh, they didn't encourage, well, yeah, they encouraged it because when you made a letter to your parents, the pilot would say, I want to see those letters going to your mother and dad, so we'd have to bring them to him. Yeah. And if we didn't bring them to him in a few days, or that letter to your parents, he made sure we wrote to our parents and our parents would write them back. But now they didn't just uh, scratch out a word. You only had to write on the front page of the paper because it actually, to censor the words or that, 
they would take a uh, razor blade and actually cut it out of the of your letter. They cut could, it out entirely. Oh yeah, because otherwise you could do something with them and get that word. See, they are. There were certain words you weren't allowed to, or how should I say, what you're doing, if it was whatever. Oh yeah, they cut it out. Wow. So and, it, and coming back, they cut them out too. Joe said that it was common for their top turret gunner to pray for their safety on missions. Well, it was a good prayer. We prayed quite a few times, but no, he, we'd always tell him, forget the shooting, get to praying. <laughs> <laughs> get to praying. <laughs> yeah, it, it, not only that, but I don't care what religion you had or you were, they often didn't have like a priest for the Catholics or whatever denomination there was. I forget what they call them, but they would have a service mm -hmm. that you'd go to pray prior to your your, your uh, mission. And there's not many that missed those, I'll tell you that. Yeah. yeah. Now, coming back from a mission, they'd uh, question you interrogate you after the mission to what you've seen or what you did or whatever. Not only that, they'd give you a shot or two of brandy or cognac. Some of us drank and some of us didn't, but I did. But you take that and it, it would more or less relax you and the question like we're doing now, they'd come easier to you. Let's put it that way. Sure. Yeah. After every mission, yeah. In retrospect, Joe can see how his combat experience changed how he sees life. Boy, I'd have to say, it made you as young as you were what life really meant. Like, see, I didn't expect to be 20. Didn't expect to be 20. And you more or less, I, how would I say it? You didn't say, oh, next week I might be gone, but you, you'd you have that in your back of your head. I don't care who you were. Yeah, but we had parachutes and we relied on them. That was one thing. As long as I had that parachute, I figured I could live. Bail out. Plane could get in trouble or that. And we had a bell there that the pilot would press when that bell went off, you knew how to get out of that plane. And once that bell rang, you didn't ask who or what, you just made your way. And now in those tours, I couldn't fit a parachute. They had backpack, they had seat packs, mm -hmm. and it had uh, chest packs. The chest packs you could leave outside, and you had two hooks on your parachute harness. That was always on you. So when you, if you had to take that parachute and get on, you clipped it on you. And you had to be careful not to pick up the D-ring. The D-ring is what opens up the parachute. You better make sure you've got the handle to pick up that parachute and clip it on you the proper way. And then you, once you left, got out of the plane, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, then you pull the ripcord. 
Never had a bailout. Me, me and the did you, did you during training? Oh, yeah. I think about 500 sheet, they'd leave it drop. Hmm. And uh, it was similar to. Not only that, in the water, you just had seconds. If you had to land in the water with yeah. the plane. Forget how many seconds you had because it would break apart in seconds. And you know if they train you if you bail out over water, because we had to come over the what sea is there between would be the, the English Channel. English Channel. Yep. And you you would bail out. We had May Wests underneath. The parachute harness. A May West was World War II era slang for a type of inflatable life preserver. The nickname comes from the resemblance of the inflated life preserver to the voluptuous figure of the famous American actress, comedian, and musician May West, who is well known for her curvaceous figure and risque humor. I didn't know you played. Playing all my life. This is work. <laughs> and they were flat, but they had two CO2 cylinders. They're like little bombs. Did you ever see them? And you'd you'd pull down on them, and that would release the air into your May West, your life preserver in water. Okay. Now they train us if you're over water. It's hard to see how far you are from the water to tell you how far you are, so you got more or less guess. When you hit the water, you'd have to release your parachute, otherwise that would drag you down there. So you had to unclip your parachute, drop down, free fall in other words. Oh, free fall down and then count, I think that was 10 too, and then pull your cords, and then you'd come up like a cork, because <laughs> that was around your neck. And uh, now, as far as shooting somebody, I don't think I could shoot a person. Yeah. Well, maybe if he shot at me, maybe I'd shoot back naturally. But a friend of mine, same age as me, he was in Germany, and he, he shot two, two Germans, and I thought, well, like I say, it was different. He'd get shot at, too. I was shooting at a plane. I wasn't shooting at a person. Eventually, maybe he died in that plane, too, but I wasn't to go up there and... I hate to shoot a deer. I never shot a deer, let's put it that way. Or a rabbit, deer hunt, rabbit hunting. No, I didn't think they were hurting me. Well, I knew they weren't hurting me. I didn't want them to eat. I didn't eat them. I didn't like to Say I was eating rabbit or deer. So I mean, no, as far as killing something, no, I don't, or even today, I don't, well, killing is, I'm against killing, let's put it that way. Daniel, it shows you what to do. Yeah, train you well, let's put it that way. And you had to listen and you had to be good. Like the instructor told me, you better be good, better listen. Yeah, it, it, uh, 
not only that, the pilot would keep making sure you work good. All of it. Yeah. That's one reason he was an instructor. I'm forgetting the college down on Iowa State. He was Iowa State College. He was a professor there. He went back to college when, when I met him, he was still studying at, or not studying, teaching at that college. Yeah. But he kept us in shape. We were still kids. 18 years still a kid, 19 years still a kid. Right. But you go up in a hurry. While we were flying in the last few missions, they gave us a piece of oil cloth with the American flag on it with a, with a safety pin. And now the one that's got given the briefing, now when you, you get shot down or something like that, and you know where the German army is and the Russian army is, you give yourself up to the Germans. Patton will get you out. If the Russians get you, we won't know anything about you. Right. Cold War was starting already, see? In our next episode, Joe will tell us about how the war ended for him and what he did with the Army after leaving England. Thanks for spending your time listening to Preserving Valor. Make sure to hear all our future episodes by following us on Spotify and subscribing on Substack. And of course, a huge thank you to Joe Henrietti and the veterans who served alongside of him. Thank you.